Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. We're going to resume uh, our study this morning. In the last message in this series, we talked about how Israel was scattered. Uh, they entered the promised land, but then they were scattered. Jews in the, you know, the northern ten tribes were exiled to Assyria in 722 B.C. Jews in the southern two tribes were exiled to, to Babylon in 586 B.C., just over a hundred years later. But was this exile permanent? Uh, Was it everlasting? And why not? And then another question might be, and this is a relevant question for today, but is there dispersion all over the world permanent today? Is it permanent today? There's, There's Jews all over the world today from Germany to France Spain, Portugal, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Egypt, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Thailand, China, India. I might have mentioned some of those twice. I don't know. I mean, even when I was a missionary in South America, uh, I'm walking down the street in the middle of Santiago, Chile, and there's a Jew in front of me, walking in front of me. I mean, just as clear as day. And I was thinking, what is he doing all the way over here? Right? How far? He is away from that land. And they're, they're called actually diaspora Jews, dispersed Jews. Um, so is that, is that permanent? And uh, that's what we want to talk about today as we continue to work our way just chronologically through history, through Scripture, uh, focusing on truths related to Israel and the land. And our goal, I'll remind us, is just to think biblically about the land of Israel. Just We want to think biblically about it. And we're studying this because of uh, the situation going on in Israel right now. By the way, I should be in Israel today if it wasn't for Hamas. Me and Ed would be in Israel today, probably with a lot of jet lag. But we would be there, and I'm sad we're not. But I'm glad to be here any day, right? But uh, anyway, a lot of people have come with questions, you know, young and old, come with questions just asking me, you know, how how do we think about the modern state of Israel? Uh, What are we to think about the Jewish people and the battle for the land today and what's going on? Why before 1948 was there only 1%? of the Jewish population in Israel, and today there's almost half of the Jewish population today in Israel. What caused that? What sparked that? And uh, what should we think about it? Um, Do me a favor real quick. You guys have your Bibles? Hold it up for me. Yeah, if you got it. Yes, look at all those beautiful books. Now take your finger, put it in Genesis chapter 12. And then take another finger... And put it in Acts chapter 1. This is an amazing thing. Look how much portion of Scripture that is. That's 80% of the Bible, probably. And that is mostly written about Israel. 
and their history and God's interactions with them. Look at all that. And, and so, since most of the Bible is written about that and God's interaction with them, it's, I think it, it behooves us, it's critical for us to learn about Israel and, and even to study systematically Israel. Uh, how are we going to understand our Bibles without it? I think if you want to understand the Bible storyline, you have to pay attention to Israel. And when you do, you gain tremendous insight into the world as it is today, the state of the world today. It helps you make sense of it because events recorded in our Bible, right, have shaped the world as it is today. Really has. And so by way of review, we have established uh, that God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants forever. This was defined as the land that he was walking on. And uh, God confirmed that promise with a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Um, he chose this land because uh, the nation of Israel would, that would come through Abraham, his descendants, would be given the law and have a global influence on the world there. The whole world kind of was forced to travel through this corridor where they lived, the land of Israel, and uh, through their keeping of the law and that sort of thing, they would have an influence on the world. And then we ask the question, hey, if God promised the land of the Jewish people forever, then why in the world do they rarely dwell securely in the land? What's up with that? Uh, why are they just attacked constantly? Why do situations like this go on? I mean, why their dispersions? And, and so... Why is there never any peace in the Middle East? And one reason that we looked at is because of the spiritual animosity, the ancient spiritual animosity between Abraham's descendants over the promised land and who owns it and who did God give it to. The second reason was that the land was, uh, it always belongs to them, but disobedience brings exile from it. And upon entering the Mosaic Covenant, a bilateral Conditional covenant, Israel understood that uh, keeping the covenant would guarantee them blessings and establishment in the land, but disobedience would bring cursings and scattering from the land. Uh, and so, uh, last time we, we studied the conquest and the settlement of the land, reasons for the conquest of the land, and we answered that difficult question that everybody wants to ask, you know, how could God wipe out the Canaanites? We answered that last week if you missed it. But um, shortly after they settled the land, we saw that they disobeyed quickly, didn't they? They did not keep the law. And they started to worship the gods of the Canaanites as well. Actually, it says that they became even worse than the Canaanites who lived there before them. And so, God would only put up with it so long, right? He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them to repent. Uh, Israel didn't, and they were exiled. For a time, Judah learned, right? Hezekiah repented, and that stayed the hand of God. But eventually, they kept going into apostasy, and they were exiled as well. And so, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the theocratic kingdom, came to an end at that point. The uh, Shekinah glory presence of God 
departed from the temple that Solomon built. This was a visible, tangible thing that departed. The land was laid waste. It was made desolate in the terms of the Old Testament, like a wilderness. It was made like a wilderness, uh, cities which are not inhabited, because God took them out of the land and put them in a different location. And then what also ended was an active ruler on the throne of David. The throne of David is mentioned several times, and it's and uh, it's like the king of Israel, King David, King Solomon. Um, after them, uh, there were other kings, but Jeremiah 22, 29, 30 says, O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man, it was speaking of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. It says, write this man down childless. Now, he wasn't actually childless. It's saying, write him down childless. Consider him childless because his descendants, his sons, weren't going to reign as king. It says, a man who will not prosper in his days, no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And obviously, the Davidic line didn't end there. It just meant that there was going to be a pause on it, basically. They weren't going to have a ruler in Israel. They're actually... Uh, Christ comes through that line, that's why I say that. But from this point on, they were going to be ruled by Gentile powers, Gentile nations. They weren't going to be autonomous, self-determining nation anymore. They were going to be ruled by another nation, like you know, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and others. And so this is what uh, Jesus dubbed the times of the Gentiles. And it's a time period that lasts until... His return, that's uh, uh, what he's, he's talking about, the Great Tribulation period, when he uses that term. So it's not a positive statement about a mostly Gentile church, talking about the times of the Gentiles. It's a statement about Israel being under the power of Gentiles politically, and uh, Gentile nations ruling over them, while the kingdom of Israel is dissolved, and Jerusalem's controlled by her enemies. So... Uh, the kingdom of Israel falls, and it's a sad story, right? But the good news is that God doesn't just, you know, destroy them completely and reject them forever. He's a covenant-keeping God. The prophets talk over and over about how God's going to, He won't destroy you, but He is going to discipline you and return you. And uh, that's exactly what happens. That's the observable pattern that we've witnessed dispersion followed by preservation followed by restoration followed by reconciliation and all of this is foretold before they even enter the land i mean they're on the plains of moab east of the jordan river and moses prophet moses says you are going to enter the land but you're going to be exiled he says all of that before they even go into it he it's he's he's uh It's a prophetic statement. Chapter 4 and 30 of Deuteronomy are key passages that we're going to look at to understand understand Israel's future. There's some things revealed here. So let's look at verse 25 of Deuteronomy 4. It says, When you become the father of children, Moses speaking to Israel, when you become the father of children and children's children, and have remained long in the land, and act, accord, and act corruptly, 
And make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And there you will serve God's. The work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, another key word, and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God, and he will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. So this is a tremendous spoiler alert for them, isn't it? Here they're getting ready to enter the land. They're excited, and we're excited for them if we're reading it for the first time. I mean, they've been out in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering, and we're waiting for them to get there, right? And here it is. They're going into the land, and you think, this is it. This is it. They're going to enter the promised land. And then what happens? Moses speaks up, and and he just sort of pops your balloon of hope for them because here they're going to disobey as soon as they enter. They're going to be exiled. They're going to be scattered. He doesn't say, if you do, he says, when you do, and uh, he predicts their apostasy. But uh, there's another spoiler in that in their distress, it says they would seek God and return to the land because of the kind of God, it's not because of them, but because of the kind of God that God is. He's a faithful, covenant-keeping God. It says, I'm not going to destroy you uh, completely. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to forget my covenant with you. I'm going to keep it. And in your distress, that's actually going to bring your heart back to me. When Israel goes into distress, it really makes them, just like us, right? We go into distress. What do we do? We seek the Lord. We turn towards him. And uh, you see here that a remnant <clears throat> is going to be preserved, and they're going to return to the Lord and to the land. And uh, these are the promises that they would cling to in exile. Uh, this, this portion of Scripture is going to become very applicable for them hundreds of years later in exile. They're going to be like, oh yeah, I remember when Moses said that. But then they're going to embrace God's promises of restoration. And those promises are going to shepherd their hearts in exile as they understand God's covenant plan isn't nullified through their disobedience. And that's an assuring promise for us in Christ too, isn't it? Disobedience doesn't nullify his promises to us in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But uh, here we see God's promises not to destroy, but to return and restore them based on his covenant, the patriarchal Covenant, And I'm really holding back this morning, to be honest with you, because there's so much archaeological evidence for the exiles. Uh, They actually went to these places, and there is undeniable, unquestioning evidence for their presence in Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon during this time. I mean, we can go back and read their contracts and different things that they made. I mean, there was like a sector of Babylon called Judatown. And so it really did happen. I just want you to know that. But there's something we don't want to miss or gloss over here, and it's in 
In this verse it says, uh, in the latter days you'll return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. And take note of that phrase, in the latter days. That phrase is used in abundance by the prophets. The latter days are the last days, maybe your Bible says. Or phrases like it are prophetic phrases. That they can signify, they can point to the first coming. But most of the time they point to the second coming. To end times events, day of the Lord type events, tribulation, return, kingdom, passages. And uh, so that's what you see here. You often see in the prophets that, um, I mean, it is super abundant in the prophets for them to talk about Israel returning to the land, but not just from Babylon. They're actually talking about some sort of future return that just hasn't happened yet. Conditions like this world has never seen before. So he's, yeah, he's saying, yeah, you guys are going to return from exile, but there's way more than that coming. And uh, in Deuteronomy 29.4, Moses even reveals to them that they're in need of a new covenant. A new covenant, you need a new heart, he says, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a new heart, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. He's in, in this, these chapters hinting that you guys need a new covenant, and Israel has to be brought into that in the last days. Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 through 4 says, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, And will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if you're outcasts or at the ends of the earth, from there, the Lord your God will gather you. I mean, even if you're in Santiago, Chile, huh? Uh, But from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which uh, which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. There's new covenant hence there again. Now the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and those uh, who hate you, who persecuted you, and the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand. And so here we see the first mention of this repeated theme in the latter prophets. The latter prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. You know, earlier prophets would have been like Elijah, Elisha, Samuel. But uh, this is the message that's repeated in great detail over and over and over again, like a broken record that we don't even have time for. But it's this Israel's going to be regathered by God, they're going to be saved, given new hearts. Their enemies, Israel's enemies, are going to be judged, and then they're going to prosper in the land. And you should note that these aren't only referring to spiritual blessings promised to them. We're actually talking about physical, material blessings that they're being restored to. And it shouldn't surprise us, Jesus spoke of uh, you know, material blessings in his kingdom too for those who are faithful. But I think the, the, where, we, where we tend to get hung up is in, in our thinking about where we're going is that we kind of think, well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and that's the end of the story. And uh, we just live in this spiritual thing for a long time, right? We just stare into the glory presence of God and that's it. But the Bible 
right? Sin brought curse to this created world. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to restore not only the spiritual stuff, but he's going to restore the physical stuff as well. He's going to remove the curse on creation. Creation's longing for it to be restored, and, and uh, we're actually going to dwell on a new heaven and new earth someday. Like, that's the ultimate hope. And uh, it's not us going to God and some spiritual thing. It's God's kingdom coming down and man dwelling with him on earth, and it is a very tangible thing. Actually, a really good book Randy Alcorn wrote is called Heaven, an excellent book on that. But So what the prophets do is they, they build on what is said in Deuteronomy 4 and 30. These are, these are base passages for the prophets. This is the foundation they build on. They build on what's said in Deuteronomy 4 and 30. And while they prophesy again about the return from Babylon, many times their prophecies clearly extend beyond that to a future time that hasn't happened yet. Ends time stuff with the return and restoration of the kingdom with Christ on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And again, something that didn't happen in the return from Babylon, did it? Uh, in the return from Babylon and Assyria and the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and New Testament, there, we didn't, eh, they didn't have a big mass repentance and return. A lot of people actually stayed in Babylon. Um, they, they built a meager temple that Herod later enlarged, and there was no glory presence there. I mean, the Shekinah glory never returned. It never indwelled that temple. They waited and waited for his coming, and they were back in the land, but they were still dominated by Gentile powers, by Persia, by Greece, by Rome. And so if all of those prophecies by the prophets were to be fulfilled in that first return, well, then we'd have to conclude that the prophecies failed miserably. Uh, they, they didn't happen. The return from exile just never reached the magnitude envisioned by the prophets and uh, even yet today, and then there's post-exile prophets, prophets after the exile, like Zechariah, who were still preaching the fulfillment of these, this return as yet future, even though they'd returned. And so it's really interesting. And, and basically, all I want to do with the remainder of our time is to look at some of these prophecies about Israel being restored to the land, just taking an open and honest look at them, just seeing, hey, what does the Bible say at face value, and uh, we're going to look at them, and then we're going to develop from this an Old Testament definition of the kingdom that they were expecting when you come to the New Testament. And when Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom is at hand, what, what do they have in their minds? What are they thinking? And so um, I want to say, though, first a couple of words about prophecy before we dive in. Prophecy, we know, is not just to feed our curiosity, Right? Uh, even though we are curious. It's, it's, it has a purpose, number one, to spark purity. Purity in our lives. It's to purify us. It's also to provide hope, and it gives us eternal perspective. Uh, prophecy will change you. It'll change your life. It, it motivates you to holy living when you see the God's judgment that's coming. It encourages you. And stabilizes you when you see that there's this sovereign God who predicted it all beforehand. And yet he's going to come and he's going to make everything right in this world. He's going to make things the way it ought to be. And then it brings eternal perspective because 
Because it gets us past the here and now and we start to live for things that really matter, things that are going to matter forever. Prophecy will, may, just change your, the course of your life. I kid you not. Prophecy got me out of bed this week to go to work, partially. So did my alarm clock. But I was thinking, I don't feel like going to work today. And then I thought, he's going to reward his faithful servants. And it, it just, it, and, and, and then changing a diaper, okay? For heaven's sake. Right? You can do that. Everything you do in this life, if you know where you're going and you know the rewards that are, that are waiting you, you can do anything for the glory of God and be rewarded for it. Even changing a diaper. So, uh, and we have a lot of those in my house right now. Unfortunately. But, you know, I, I say these things because uh, we, we just live in a day and an age where prophecy is just kind of on the back burner Prophecies neglected and avoided and even, even despaired of. And uh, it kind of seems like part of the reason is because there's, kinda, there's been some prophecy abuse, prophetic abuse. You know, we went from an era where it was just prophecy, 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 and, and, and it was like one extreme, and now we've gotten to an era where it's like nobody wants to talk about it at all. And, and I just don't think that's... That's healthy. A healthy place is somewhere right in the middle. And uh, you guys know that like one-third to one-quarter of the Bible's prophecy. I think it's 27% or 30%, somewhere in there. That's how much of the Bible's prophecy. So uh, my commission is to preach the full counsel of God, right? And uh, if a quarter or a third of the Bible's prophecy, that means we're going to talk about prophecy. You can't, you can't avoid it. Is what I'm saying. We need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to talk about it honestly and take it and wrestle with it a little bit. But not just wrestle with it. Be encouraged by it. And that's, it's, it's to comfort and all of that. So um, I just want to encourage you guys in that. Um, let's not forget that prophecy is so precious and it's, soul, it's a soul-shaping gift from God. But let's dive into a few Old Testament prophetic texts on the restoration of Israel and the kingdom just getting a cursory view of what they entail. And I'm going to tell you right now, they all pretty much sound the same thing. They sound the same alarm. And uh, I know these are longer passages than we're used to, but uh, I trust you'll stick in there with me. Uh, Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5 say, For the sons of Israel, it might be easier just to follow along in the notes than flip back and forth, but for the sons of Israel will remain... For many days, without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without the ephod, like the priest wore on his chest, David's day, or the household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So again, Israel without king, without prince, without sacrifice, they don't have a temple all of that, obviously you can tell he's writing to the original audience as well in that ancient context with the things that he mentions. But Hosea is also pointing beyond that to a future time in the last days. 
uh, when Israel returns to the Lord and they come trembling before David, Christ, the ultimate David. Jeremiah 23, 5-8 says, Behold, the days are coming. A day is coming, the last days, the day, that day, that great day. So, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, they will, then they will live on their own soil. And so as this prophecy suggests, Judah and Israel are going to be, these, the, the two divided kingdoms are going to be brought back and united again. They're going to dwell securely in the last days under the Davidic branch Christ who reigns over king, reigns over them as king on their own soil. And uh, I don't know about you, but I read that, and I say, if I simply take it at face value, it points beyond the first restoration, beyond the original audience. Yes, they're included, but it points beyond that to the second coming, to things that just haven't happened yet. And what you notice uh, often in these second coming passages is that it's usually uh, followed by great tribulation and hostile nations coming against Israel. It's just so, there's so many passages about that. Um, the salvation of Israel comes through an encounter with hostile nations surrounding Israel and Jerusalem. And then Christ comes, he wipes them out. He, uh, Revelation 19, and then that's followed by the establishment of this kingdom on earth that's characterized by righteousness, justice, and peace. And it's, it's what we all long for, isn't it? I mean, aren't you sick of wearing glasses? Okay, he's going to set the, the creation free from the curse, and that includes, I think, my eyeballs that are blurry right now. Um, cancer. The lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. The deaf are going to hear. All of these things. The fake socialist movements out there. I call them Injustice movements. We want real justice to be done. That's only going to come when he comes. And uh, you just can't miss this. This is our hope. This is what we long for, this coming righteous reign on earth. Someone to set things free. I mean, it's been corrupted since Genesis 3. And, and so the, the major theme in the prophets is there's going to come a righteous reign on earth and it's, and it's an unmistakably dominant theme in Scripture. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 is another major Old Testament prophetic text regarding the kingdom. And no, this is not about the United Nations, because they have this on a monument outside. Uh, they are not the ones to bring peace to the earth, but uh, this predicts international harmony as a result of Messiah's reign. Uh, look, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains, 
and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the Lord will go forth from or for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Uh, one commentary on Isaiah said about this passage that the prophet Isaiah sees the church at some distant period, exalted and conspicuous, and the nations resorting to it for instruction in true religion. John Calvin said that this prophecy is concerning the restoration of the church and that the fulfillment of it is not to be looked for on earth. Now, it's fairly common to see texts like this treated that way by those who think God's done with Israel and, uh, and that we're living in the kingdom now. But uh, I just, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's necessary. I would even say that that approach could, could be dangerous because you're just making the text mean whatever you want it to mean. Because that's not really what it says. I think texts like this one right here that we just looked at, Isaiah 2, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 40 through 48, Isaiah 65, these texts that don't fit our present age, but they don't necessarily fit the eternal state either, well, I think they fit just fine into the 1,000-year reign described in Revelation chapter 20, after Christ comes, but before the eternal state of things. Remember, there's a resurrection of saints, then there's a 1,000 years, mentioned six times in Revelation 20, and then there's another resurrection of judgment for all the wicked, and then there's the lake of fire and the eternal state. But uh, that's... That's how I approach it. I think it fits naturally into that period. I don't think you have to spirit it away. But Bible students call this doctrine premillennialism, the idea that uh, the belief in a future 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, uh, the idea that the millennium is in the future after the second coming. And if this is all new to you, it probably sounds really strange, and maybe you think I'm crazy, I don't know. But I want you to know that the early church was premillennial. For the first few centuries, they were premillennial. Some of the earliest big-name saints like Papias, Polycarp, right, descendants of disciples of the apostles, like Apostle John, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, these were premillennial guys. Justin Martyr said this was the orthodoxy of his day. How interesting orthodoxy can change. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points says Justin Martyr, are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. A historian Philip Schaff said, the most striking point in the eschatology, the end times, of the anti-Nicene age, pre-AD, 1, pre-AD 325, uh, is the prominent Kiliasm or millenarianism. That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years. He says it was a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, and Lactantius. 
Uh, and I think basically what happened, if you just want my take on it, what happened was as time went on and the Holy, well, the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire, right? Caesar's getting saved and the world is becoming Christian. Um, and, and the Catholic Church is growing and it becomes this geopolitical thing with its currency and armies, and everything, you know. So uh, I basically think that they, they, they started to think, well, it's been a long time. It hasn't come yet. Maybe we are the kingdom of God on earth. And so that's what happened. Uh, there was a school in Alexandria, Egypt, that uh, believed very differently from the Antioch school in Acts 13, uh, basically where the apostles were. And this Alexandrian school in Egypt had a couple of influential men there, Origen and Augustine. And they started to spiritualize and allegorize texts, and uh, thus amillennialism was born. It's the idea that we're living in the church age, or the kingdom now, sort of thing. And so that became the dominant view, and obviously for till the Reformation at least. And then after the Reformation, uh, people st- so during the Reformation, the hist- rather than allegorizing, they started to develop a historical grammatical hermeneutic again. You know what I mean? Just a literal take on the scriptures. And so the reformers started to apply that to doctrines like salvation, but then guys started to say, well, what about prophecy? Let's just read the prophecy plainly. And so you started to see premillennialism pick up again, and it became a mainstream thought all over again. And so uh, I think that's the history of it. But at the end of the day, I'm not, I just want you to know I'm not going to put much stock in what the early church says. I mean, I, I just think it's wisest to choose biblical fidelity over a historical allegiance any day. That's all I guess I need to say about that. I'm, just, I'm really impressed the most when, when people simply open up the word and just say, let it say what it says. Just let it say what it says. And I want to read a couple of quotes from guys that are really unexpected who did that. One was J.C. Ryle. He lived in the 1800s. This Anglican guy. He said, Time would fail me if I attempted to quote all the passages of Scripture in which the future history of Israel is revealed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah all declare the same. All predict with more or less particularity that in the end of this dispensation, the Jews are going to be restored to their own land and to the favor of God. He said, and I stand with him on this. I lay no claim to infallibility in the interpretation of the scriptures. He's saying I'm not perfect in this matter. I'm well aware that many excellent Christians cannot see the subject as I do. I can only say that to my eyes, the future salvation of Israel as a people, their return to Palestine and their national conversion to God appear as clearly and plainly revealed as any prophecy in God's word. And then Charles Spurgeon, in, 1860, in an 1864 sermon called The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews, said, there will be a native... Think about this. These guys are writing 100 years before the modern state of Israel even existed. They're just looking at prophecy, taking it at face value. But he said, they will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a body politic. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Israel has now become alienated, alienated from her own land. And if there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and the meaning of this passage, Ezekiel 37, dry bones come into life, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. And so I share these quotes because I feel the same way. I cannot not see it. 
Just taking it at face value, it's too descriptive. I just I couldn't even preach the passage if I had to explain it away somehow into our age. And if you, you just let the terms retain their historical grammatical meaning, terms like Jerusalem, like Israel, I know Jesus is the ultimate Israelite. I'm not saying that, but most of the time Israel is just Israel. And uh, you'll end up premillennial every, every time. And I think you'll, if you take them just historically, grammatically, you look around at the world today and you think, wow, modern state of Israel again? Millions of Jews returning to the land, and they're surrounded by hostile nations, and you're kind of reading prophecy, and you're looking at that, and you're going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay ready, and I'm going to keep my eyes on the sky, and uh, I'm just going to stay on my toes here, right? Because you're thinking, boy, these events could play out any time. I mean, the stage is set, is what I'm saying. And uh, Jesus said, hey, just be ready. Be watchful. And that's, that's all I could, I could boil down his application of prophecy. Be ready. Be watchful. Follow. And, and don't take my word on this stuff. I want you to be convinced through your own study of the word about all this. Um, okay. Let me grab one more prophecy for you. Let's, we're going we're gonna to bypass Isaiah 11. And we're going to look at Isaiah 19. Isaiah 11 is the one with the wolf dwelling with the lamb and all that. But uh, it also talks about recovering Israel a second time with his hand. But Isaiah 19 reveals that the believing Gentile nations, not just individuals, are going to be included in the people of God alongside Israel in the millennial kingdom. And for the sake of time, we're only going to read you know, verses 22 through 25. But he says, The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Are they going to be worshiping Allah? No, it says, in that day, Israel will be the third party. What? They're going to be the third wheel with Egypt and Assyria. They're all going to get along. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that strange? So again and again, you see passages like this. uh, The prophets predicting Israel at the center of the global kingdom with the rest of the nations around them being blessed. But you also see conditions that don't explain, you know, that don't fit the eternal state. Like Zechariah 14 says, If Egypt doesn't come and worship the Lord, Christ during you know, certain periods of the year, then they're not going to get rain. And they're going to experience plagues. And it's so, I'm not lying, it's, it's hard to think through. Some of the descriptions overlap when you're talking about the new heaven, new earth, the millennial kingdom. They sort of overlap and you kind of got to weed it out. That's why we always approach prophecy with humility, right? But at the end of the day, there's passages here that if you just take them plainly, they don't fit. Now they don't fit the eternal state. But to sum up the message of the prophets, Israel's future is contained in these themes here that I have. Exile followed by distress, great tribulation actually, and then return from exile on the land, reunification of Israel and Judah, new covenant blessings poured out on them, restoration of Jerusalem, and the worship of the King of Kings who brings joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come.
That's the song about the second coming. But, like Ryle said, time fails us, and so my mission for you this week, should you decide to accept it, is that you either individually or as a family, sit down as a family if you've got children that are old enough, and just read these prophetic texts I've got listed. It's just a, a mission. I've got Isaiah 24 through 27. That's a revelation in a nutshell. Uh, 34 through 35, Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 30 through 33, Ezekiel 36 through 48, Daniel 7, Amos 9, Zechariah 12 through 14. Uh, just read them and, and, and sit in wonder at what God has in store for the future. Just sit in wonder and think, whoa, things are about to get a whole lot better. <laughs> and uh, let it sanctify you, let it give you hope, let it give you purpose until he comes. But lastly, let's not miss God's faithful covenant-keeping character again. God's loyalty, uh, the reason for the restoration is not the Jews being perfect. It is because of the patriarchal covenant that he has with them. And his faithfulness to Israel is a bellwether of God's faithfulness to us in our own lives. I mean, we are a lot like Israel. We're not perfect. We disobey. We have moments of great spiritual clarity and growth in Christ. And the next day, (laughs) we're prone to leave the God we love. And so Israel's story could very much well be our story. And, And just like them, we have a faithful God who keeps his covenant with us. He delights in unchanging love. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. And uh, what an amazing thing. There is no amazing thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen. So if you're in Christ, you have a bright future ahead of you. If you haven't trusted Christ, well, you have a dark future ahead of you. But you can change that by responding to the good news that Jesus died for your sins. He paid for your sins on the cross so that if you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, that you will be saved. From your sins, you'll pass out of judgment into life and you'll enjoy his eternal kingdom forever. And that right there, salvation, is the greatest gift you can receive this Christmas. So I'm going to invite the worship team up for our last song. and Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. What a precious gift it is. And for prophecy and just pray that it would have its effect on our lives just as we were talking about. That it would purify us, it would provide us with hope and it would give us an eternal perspective that we would live each and every day not just for the here and now but for that which is going to matter forever. We pray in Christ's name.